Well, this is week number two in Nehemiah, second chapter. We began this uh, series of sermons in the book of Nehemiah last week, and we're going to spend most of the fall walking kind of chapter by chapter through the book of Nehemiah. As I mentioned last week, Ezra, the book that precedes Nehemiah, and Nehemiah kind of go together. Um, They're both referring to the same period of time. This is the last kind of chronological, historical moment uh, in the people of Israel prior to God going quiet for 400 years and, of course, Jesus coming into the world. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah are divided up in similar ways. Um, The first six chapters of Ezra deal with the rebuilding of the temple, and the second half of Ezra, verses 7 through 10, deal with the restoration of the people. It follows a pattern that Nehemiah uh, also follows. In the first seven chapters of the book of Nehemiah, sorry, the first six chapters, you get the rebuilding not of the temple, but of the wall. And then in the last half of the book, you get the rebuilding of the people. So the patterns are very similar. The, the burden of Nehemiah and the burden of Ezra are very similar, even though their focuses are different. Nehemiah's main focus is on the physical construction with the spiritual component. Ezra's focus is on the spiritual component with the physical construction on the back end. So it's interesting how these books go together, not only thematically, but also in terms of history. Two goals that I have for this sermon series in Nehemiah are reflected in the goals of Ezra and Nehemiah that I've just described. The first goal is that we would experience spiritual renewal, that we would experience the Lord's comfort in renewed holiness in worship and obedience. And secondly, that we wouldn't be inspired by Nehemiah's example, his example of trust in God and love for people and prayer life and energy and planning and leadership and labor to build and grow God's kingdom, which as we know today, is not the city of Jerusalem, it is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So last week we saw Nehemiah become aware of a crisis, and that is a crisis of physical uh, devastation and a a crisis of spiritual devastation. The walls were broken down. The people were greatly in trouble. And that moves Nehemiah to respond to the crisis when he hears about it in chapter 1. And the way he begins is the way we should always begin, in prayer. Praying to God, the God who alone can alleviate the crisis. And this week, as we come to chapter 2, we're going to see Nehemiah's plan. Because Nehemiah is not only a man of prayer, he's a man of planning. We typically, if, by personality and maybe gifting and things like that, we tend to fall out on one of those two ends. Maybe we're people of great prayer, but then we don't really know what to do about anything. Or we're people who are great planners but don't pray. We should always keep those things together. We should always be people of action and people of prayer and make sure that we're people of prayer before we're people of action. The action doesn't cancel out the prayer. The prayer doesn't cancel out the action. And Nehemiah inspires us and instructs us to respond to crises in prayerful, wise, and active ways. So this chapter is going to present us two very different ways to respond to a crisis. We're all going to experience crises in our lives. Many of us, the longer we've lived, have experienced more than the younger among us, but we are going to face crises in our lives, and we need to know how to respond to them. And we're going to see in Nehemiah an example of faith, and we're going to see in Sanballat and Tobiah two men that show up near the end of how to respond to a crisis by fear. So how will we respond to ours? 
whose example will we follow? Let's talk about point number one, how to respond to a crisis by faith, and then we'll look at point number two, how to respond to a crisis by fear. And I've got five subpoints that explain what I mean by faith and what I mean by fear. First, we can respond to a crisis by walking with God through faith. And that's what we see in Nehemiah's example in the first eight verses of chapter 2. We left off last week learning how Nehemiah approached the renewal of the Jewish people, both their souls and their city. So how did Nehemiah respond to the crisis? Let's look at exactly how he responded. After praying, confessing sin, reminding God of his promises, asking God to keep those promises, he acted in faith realizing that God had providentially placed him in a strategic position as cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, to give aid to the Jewish people. And here's what we see. First of all, faith means we devote significant time to prayer with God. Look at the first verse. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, Nehemiah's first faith move, as we saw last week, was to pray. But it wasn't just to pray one time. Because here we read that Nehemiah now finds himself in the month of Nisan, which is four months later than the month of Chislev, which was mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. So evidently, from November, October, November, to March or April, from the fall to the spring, Nehemiah had devoted himself for four months to prayer. J.A. Packer says, Even when God's people are praying just the right prayer about the concerns that God himself has laid on their hearts, he still may keep them waiting because the time he appoints for prayer answering action is often not as soon as as hoped. So persistence in prayer, proving our seriousness of purpose as we keep our requests before the throne day after day, become a vital lesson we need to learn. And that's one such lesson that Nehemiah teaches us, devoting significant time to prayer as we enter a crisis. Number two, faith means that we wait on an open door from God. It means we wait. Prayer is very active, but we also wait. Look at verse two. The king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Over these four months, Nehemiah has continued to pray, to weep, to mourn. The condition of the people and the city has deeply affected him, but he's largely been able to keep it together on the, on the job. Nehemiah recognizes that part of his responsibility as cupbearer is to be cheerful and positive in the king's presence. It's not to bring all of his issues to work with him every day. But he's serving wine after all. And Ecclesiastes 10.19 reminds us that wine is given to gladden life. (laughs) How unlike his job responsibility would it be if Nehemiah showed up every day and said, Here, king, here's your wine. Enjoy it. It would be inconsistent to serve the king wine with a sad countenance. But it's also a violation of court etiquette, as we read in Esther chapter 4, verse 11. There were ways in which... A cupbearer was to conduct themselves, and it wasn't to be sad in the king's presence. But things have changed, and Nehemiah's burden continues to increase, and as his burden intensifies, he can't keep it off his face much longer. And Artaxerxes notices. He recognizes that Nehemiah isn't sick, he's just sad. 
Proverbs 15, 13 says, A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. Nehemiah responds kind of alert, not even aware that he's sad. He just kind of, oh, no, he's, he, he recognized, he caught it. I've been trying to keep it from him, but he caught it. He was obviously trying to keep this from the king, but sorrow of heart eventually works its way out of the heart and onto the face. And Nehemiah responds in fear, recognizing that he, what he's about to say might be viewed as a sign of disloyalty or misunderstood by the king. Notice here that fear can coexist with faith, as faith is being exercised, right? Nehemiah is proceeding faithfully, but there's trepidation in his spirit. This is not inconsistent with faith. We can sometimes beat ourselves up that we aren't walking by faith if there's any presence of any kind of trepidation in our hearts. That's not the case at all. Brothers and sisters, you can be full of faith and absent of some serenity and peace in the moment that you're called to exercise it. That's what we see with Nehemiah. Faith means we devote significant time to prayer. Faith also means that we wait on an open door from God. Third, faith means we wait into the crisis and dependence on God. And this is exactly what Nehemiah does. Look at verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. As Artaxerxes inquires into the origins of Nehemiah's grief, Nehemiah reassures him that what he is going to say is not a form of disloyalty. May the king live forever. I'm not trying to usurp you. Remember, that had been the accusation that had been leveled against Ezra in the book of Ezra. Hey, they're rebelling against you. That's why they're rebuilding. You better put a stop to this. And so he's making clear, I am not in rebellion against you. I'm supportive of your government. He simply states the truth. He's burdened for his homeland and his people who are in great trouble and shame and whose city has been broken down and destroyed by fire. The king asks him, what do you want? And in 2-4, Nehemiah shoots up a quick prayer to God before answering the king. What was the content of that prayer? Well, we're not told. But I think verse one, chapter 1, verse 11 gives us an idea. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, And here's probably what he prayed. Give success, grant mercy. Give success, grant mercy. That's probably what he'd been praying for four months, according to chapter 1, verse 11. It's probably the quick prayer that he shot up to God in the very moment the king asked him what he wanted. And these concise prayers, as we go through the book of Nehemiah, are characteristic of his life, especially asking God to remember And haven't we all been there? You're in a conversation that could turn out bad. You're nervous and fearful of how it might turn out and what effect it might have on your life and the lives of those you love. And in those moments when your blood starts pumping and your mind starts racing and your heart starts beating and your breath starts increasing and your hands start sweating, you start praying. You offer up a quick, help me God, help me God. And you know what he does? He helps you. He answers you. He helps you in that moment. That's what Nehemiah experienced as he responded to the crisis by faith. Not only do we see Nehemiah devoting significant time to prayer in chapter 1, over the four months, but also in the moment he continues to pray. And in that sense, he's exercising experiential dependence upon God right in the moment he needs it. 
That's what faith does. In the moment of the crisis, praying to God. Fourthly, faith means we speak the truth and we leave the results to God. We speak the truth and leave the results to God. Look at verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then you, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He just speaks. He speaks the truth. He speaks exactly what he wants. He frames his request with dignity, with respect, and with great care, consideration, and thoughtfulness, doesn't he? He prefaces his request with, if it pleases the king. That is, if it's something you want to do. And if I have found favor in your sight, if you like me, <laughs> if I've done a good job, if I've earned the right to make any request of you. In other words, I want you to hear my request, and I only want you to grant it if you think it's a good idea and you like me. He speaks exactly the truth. He asks if he can return to Judah to rebuild the city. And even though it might be interpreted as seditious, he nevertheless, with bated breath, asks the question, makes the request. And the king issues the following response. Will you be gone long? When are you coming back? This is no doubt a great encouragement to Nehemiah. <laughs> In all those moments, you can imagine him breathing a huge sigh of relief. The first question he asked is, how long are you going to be gone? What does that tell you about his relationship with Artaxerxes? Artaxerxes loves Nehemiah. Artaxerxes respects Nehemiah. Artaxerxes admires Nehemiah's loyalty and devotion to him and frankly doesn't trust a lot of other people with that cupbearer position and would rather Nehemiah be in it. But by Nehemiah making this request, he's asking to leave the king's employ temporarily to do this assignment. The king reveals how valuable Nehemiah is to him. He's not just an employee to the king that he's willing to replace with someone else. But Nehemiah reassures him, reassures him, I'll be back. I'll be back. Now, the journey from Susa, where he is, in the kingdom of Persia, to Jerusalem, took about 55 days. It's about 1,100 miles. And it would take 55 days to get there and another 55 days to return. Now, we're told in chapter 5, verse 14, and chapter 13, verse 6, that the rebuilding of the walls took, or sorry, not the, the rebuilding of the walls only took 52 days in chapter 6. But the entire time Nehemiah served as governor was 12 years. We're told that in chapter 5, verse 14, chapter 13, verse 6. So which are we to think? Was Nehemiah gone 12 years? Well, I don't think so. I don't think he was gone 12 years. That would be a little bit discouraging for Artaxerxes. Hey, going to be gone 12 years. I'll be back though. No, he was likely gone for the 55 days he left, for the 52 days it took to build the wall, and for the 55 days to return. So maybe six months he was gone. I'm sure he made trips back and forth as he was able to do so, probably not during the wall's construction, but at least uh, after the wall was constructed during his time as governor. But he does keep his promise and he does return. But notice in verse 6 that the queen is mentioned, almost as a, as a passing comment. Now, remember that Esther was the queen when Xerxes, Artaxerxes' father, was king. 
Now, it could be that as stepmother of Artaxerxes, she would have had some influence over the king and queen to be favorably disposed to the Jews. Perhaps. Perhaps uh, Esther's good work on behalf of the kingdom made Xerxes better, and Artaxerxes, his son, recognized that. And so he was generally disposed to favor the Jews. But at the same time, Reports had been given that the Jews were insurrectionists, and so Nehemiah had a reason for feeling somewhat trepidatious about this whole encounter. But he speaks the truth, and then he leaves the results to God. But notice, he makes his request officially in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. First, he asks for one thing. Look at verse 7. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to give to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. So he's asking for imperial protection. He says, can I fly under the banner of Persia on this one? (laughs) People are out there. They're not going to like this. Can I get a safe conduct passage, please? Can you give me some letters so that when people harass me, I can show your signature on them that I am here under the King Artaxerxes' authority? And then second... He asks for a government grant. (laughs) He wants to build a walls in Jerusalem. He wants the Persians to pay for it. (laughs) But notice, he asks for a government grant, wood for the walls and for his own home. And notice in verse 8, the king granted me what I asked. It went so well for Nehemiah, better than he could have possibly imagined. And how does Nehemiah attribute that? Man, I'm a great negotiator. Man, I'm a good cupbearer. I do a great job. That's why the king granted my request. No, what does he say at the end of verse 8? The good hand of my God was upon me. And brothers and sisters, if we make it through a crisis by faith, that's the reason. Fifthly, faith means we recognize the good hand of God. Nehemiah makes clear that although Artaxerxes was generous... What was behind all of this is God's kindness, mercy, and goodness. We see this phrase used frequently, the good hand of God, throughout the book of Ezra as well. So that's how we encounter a crisis by faith. We devote significant time to prayer. We wait on an open door from God. We wade into the crisis and dependence on God. We speak the truth and we leave the results to him. And we recognize the good hand of God. But there's a second way to respond to a crisis, and that is we can respond to a crisis by fighting against God through fear. This is what we see in the second half of the chapter from verses 9 through 20. Picking up in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, as Nehemiah makes his way to Jerusalem, we're introduced to two individuals who will factor in heavily to the narrative going forward, Sanballat and Tobiah. We are told here that they are opposed to the work that Nehemiah is seeking to do, that it displeases them greatly, and that they do not like him seeking the welfare of the good and the good of Israel. This is ironic, considering Tobiah's very name means Yahweh is good. Because these men are afraid of what Nehemiah is doing, they are experiencing their own crisis. Nehemiah experienced a crisis for the people of God. They are experiencing a crisis for their own people. They are afraid, and instead of responding by faith, they respond by fear. They respond in hostility. 
Nehemiah, therefore, is extra careful as he goes into Jerusalem. His visit is brief, three days. He checks things out at night. He gives no one a report of anything God has been doing with him. And he flies solo a lot of the time with just a few, or with just a few other men in tow. His investigation leads him to verify the truthfulness of the original report that he received. Yes, the walls are broken down. Yes, the gates have been destroyed. He did this extremely covertly. After his initial inspection, he calls for a huddle and seeks to stir up those who have traveled with him to get to the work of rebuilding. He reminds them of what God has done and what the king has said, and the result is that the people are invigorated for the challenging construction project ahead. So notice, Nehemiah's faith doesn't cause him to lose all principles. Like walking in, blare the trumpets, we're going into Jerusalem, let's make a big noise. No, he recognizes that there's opposition, so he flies under the radar as much as possible. He goes out at night, he goes out solo. He tries to accommodate the situation to what needs to get done. He doesn't throw off, well, I'm trusting God, so I don't need to pay attention to anything that's going on around me. Sometimes Christians can think like that, and it's foolish and ridiculous. But rather, he understands that trusting God means operating within the circumstances that God has given you faithfully. All right? And that's what he's doing as he's exploring the destruction of the city. But in 219, we're reintroduced to Sanballat and Tobiah, and they are already... Bring in somebody else with them. Geshem. Their concern about what Nehemiah is doing is already spilling out into a recruitment effort to get others to join them in opposing the work. They're jeering, they're despising, according to chapter 2, verse 19. And when the people of God rise up to the work of God, the enemies of God will be furious. And Nehemiah responds with a word of faith and confidence in the face of their fearful fighting. You've got no civic, legal, or religious rights to this city at all, and God will defend us and establish this work. So Nehemiah doesn't whip out the letters right away. The first thing he does is speak to them in confidence that God will establish their work. So let's look, just as we looked at the five aspects of Nehemiah's faith and how he responded to the crisis. Let's look at the five aspects of Sanballat's and Tobiah's fear and how they responded to the crisis by fighting against God rather than following God. First of all, fear means that rather than praying like Nehemiah, we panic at the perceived loss of control and power. As soon as Nehemiah arrives on the scene and gives out the letters from the king, Sanballat and Tobiah are greatly displeased that someone would seek the welfare of Israel. They were offended and disgusted by the actions of Nehemiah. Now, why are they greatly displeased? Nehemiah is greatly distressed over the condition of the city. They're greatly displeased that he's distressed over the condition of the city. Well, because while we aren't told... I think we get some insight in the fact that they are rebuilding a wall. Why was this so significant? Rebuilding a wall was a civic and political statement about the future of Israel. Israel's on the comeback. It communicates two things. Security and strength are ahead for Israel. First of all, security. Psalm 122 verse 7. Peace be within your walls and security with your towers. But it also communicates strength. Proverbs 18.11 A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall 
is his imagination. So security and strength are, are perceived as a threat to Sanballat and Tobiah and makes them insecure by fearing they might be losing power, control, and influence. They oppose the work because it hinders their economic and political power and influence. And doesn't the church need to hear that in our day? We are a fighting bunch about a lot of the wrong things. When we perceive a loss of cultural influence, of cultural power, we get to fighting, don't we? We shouldn't. We should get to prayer and faith. We should get to dependence on God. We should get to all the things we see in Nehemiah. Not fighting. Not warring against the purposes of God. Secondly, fear means rather than waiting on God, we recruit others to join us in our opposition. Look at chapter 2, verse 19 where we read, but when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it. So when the jeering doesn't work initially, Sanballat and Tobiah will up the ante. This fighting spirit that is present in Sanballat and Tobiah is characteristic of them throughout the book. In fact, we will see in coming chapters how when Nehemiah doesn't respond to their peer pressure and bullying, they raise the stakes. Sanballat the Horonite governed Samaria to the north of Judah. Tobiah the Ammonite governed Ammon to the east of Judah. Geshem the Arab governed the area south of Judah. And the next time we meet Sanballat in chapter 4 verse 1, we find him jeering again. We read in chapter 4 verse 1, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. See, we saw here how Sanballat and Tobiah didn't remain alone very long, but had already brought someone else with them, Geshem. See, their concern is already spilling out into a recruitment effort to get others to join them in opposing the work of God. In chapter 4, verse 7, we find that that recruitment effort grows even more. We read, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry. They just keep recruiting more and more people. Oh yeah, if you don't listen to us, we're going to come back with more. We're going to come back with more. We're going to come back with more. We're going to come back with more as an effort to recruit others to join them in their cause. In chapter 4, a fourth opponent is introduced, the Ashdodites who are in the west of Judah. Now they got Nehemiah surrounded. North, south, east, and west, bring an opposition from every side. Okay, you won't handle the north and south? We'll grab the guy on the east. That's not enough? We'll grab the guy on the west. We'll put enough pressure on you that you will quit doing this. So they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it, as we read in chapter 4, verse 8. So that's the second way that fear works. First, it leads them to panic at their perceived loss of power and control. But second, it leads them to recruit others to join them in their opposition when Nehemiah won't hear it. Thirdly, fear means rather than depending on God, we make fun of others who are doing what we don't like in an effort to get them to stop. Look at chapter 2, verse 19 again. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem heard of it, they jeered at us. This word jeer shows up again and again and again in the book of Nehemiah. It's taunting, it's teasing, it's wagging your head, as Second Kings 19.21 says. Oh, when are they ever going to give up? It's the Hebrew way of making fun of somebody. 
poking at them. Raymond Brown, commentator on the book of Nehemiah, says, The tongue is a vicious weapon. Verbal onslaughts are often a part of the enemy's demoralizing tactics. That's what we see. Verbal attack. Verbal attack. Verbal attack. We live around verbal attacks very much. No, we're a peaceful society and culture. We don't hear any of that on a daily basis, do we? You know why people verbally attack? Because their power is being threatened. You know why they recruit others to join them in their opposition? Because their power is being threatened. You know why they jeer and make fun of people? Because their power is being threatened. Bullies are profoundly insecure people. Always have been, always will be. When you find someone who regularly attacks others verbally, you have met a very, very insecure person who is operating out of fear. They are trying to stop what they don't like because they're afraid of what they might lose, and so they tease and they mock and they deride someone in attempts to make them give up. Fourthly, fear means that rather than leaving the results to God, we intimidate to achieve our outcome. Look at again at chapter 2, verse 19. After they jeered and despised, they said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? See, Nehemiah knows that they are trying to intimidate. They're saying, hey, we know what you're doing. Nehemiah in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 we read this. Now when Sambalet and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambalet and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. So Nehemiah said, you want to meet at the plain in Ono? Oh no. I just made that up. Bible's funny sometimes. He says no to their request for a meeting. Nehemiah recognizes what they are doing, and he refuses to take the meeting. Nehemiah continually refuses to meet with them because he knows that their intentions are not good. See, some meetings are called with the intent to attack. And Nehemiah doesn't take those meetings, especially when we recognize the entreaty is a toxic attack and not a good faith effort. So why does Nehemiah refuse the meeting? Because he knows their intentions are to do him harm. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. A pig is utterly incapable of appreciating the value of a pearl. When a person who is dead set against you requests a meeting with you, Your best arguments will not work. Being nice to them won't work. Serving them won't work because they're not interested in that. They're interested in attacking you. If you engage, they won't change. You'll just get attacked. And Nehemiah knows that. And Jesus wants us to play defense in some situations. Proverbs 9, 7 and 8. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will injure you. What kind of person am I dealing with here? If it's a scoffer, don't correct them. You're just going to get abuse for yourself. If it's a wicked person, don't reprove them. You'll just get injured. 
Nehemiah knows that, which is why he doesn't take the meeting. Nehemiah is proven right as later in the same chapter they hire a false prophet with the call to, for Nehemiah to go into the temple for Sanballat was threatening to kill him. And this is what Nehemiah says is their goal all along in chapter 6, verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did who wanted to make me afraid. So he continues to pray for them, but he's not going to engage them because he knows their intention is to hurt them, hurt him. Finally, fear means rather than recognizing the good hand of God, we manipulate the narrative by assuming motives and assigning ill, Ill intent. When, they, when a good intimidation won't work, maybe lies will. When the meeting won't be accepted, a letter gets sent. And in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 5 to 7, we read the following. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it, is, it was reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're rebuilding the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is the king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. We're getting ready to send a false letter about you back to the king. So Sambalit says, we know why you're refusing to meet. You have a sinister plot you're trying to advance. That's why. Notice how Sambalit is accusing Nehemiah of the very thing he's doing. The enemies of God always do. They'll always accuse the godly of doing the wrong thing. But they're blind to their own. Sambalit has resulted to lying to others about why Nehemiah won't meet with them. So he says, fine, if you don't do what we want you to do, the wrong people are going to know this and you're going to pay. This is nuts brothers and sisters, but this is how human fear operates. It makes the life of the godly miserable. But such is the case when you, bring, you begin making your decisions out of fear and not out of faith. Fear leads us to do insane, petty, selfish, retaliatory, and vindictive things. It begins with pleading, and if that doesn't work, it leads to threats. And if that doesn't work, there's manipulation where I pretend to be your friend, but only to try to get something out of you. And if that doesn't work, I enlist others and tell you that I'm the only one who's saying this. There are so many others that are saying this. And in order to get you to do what I want you to do. If they can't get what they want, they're willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish their desired goal until they can make someone afraid enough to back off. But as Dan Allender and Trimper Longman counsel, one of the greatest gifts we can give a person who is inclined to evil is the strength to frustrate their attempts to dominate. So where does this leave all of us? With the decision to make, a daily decision to make. When we face crises, when we face difficulties, how will we respond? Faith or fear? Faith means we will look to God Wait upon God, leave the results to God, and recognize the good hand of God. Fear means we'll panic, engage in sinful toxicity, seek to intimidate, manipulate, gossip, in order to keep what we feel like we're losing. We have to pick whose kingdom we're going to serve, our own or God's. Sanballat and Tobiah served their own kingdom. Nehemiah was serving God's kingdom, and the results were totally different in the way they engaged their crises. When God's cause comes into conflict with our cause, what will we do? 
It's at that place where you will prove whether Jesus is Lord of your life in name only or not. If he truly is Lord, you'll die to yourself, crucify yourself, will, burn your I want list, and trust him for a better future, even if it means temporal loss and pain. If he isn't truly your Lord, you'll cast him aside because he's no longer rubber stamps your sinful agenda and won't sign off on your wonderful plans for your life. So what will empower us then, brothers and sisters, to choose faith over fear, God over self? To embrace by faith instead of living by fear. Well, it's by recognizing the God who gave himself up for us. The answer comes by looking beyond Nehemiah to a much greater servant. 400 years after Nehemiah, Jesus Christ, like Nehemiah, left his privileged position in the palace to be a sympathetic sufferer with his people. Like Nehemiah, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on an animal. Like Nehemiah, he faced criticism and opposition as he was doing so. And while Nehemiah's work in Jerusalem was important in the grand scheme of redemptive history, it wasn't the most important work that Jerusalem was ever going to give. No, because when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he faced opposition and criticism, yes, but it led him to the point of crucifixion. He stood in our place. He was nailed to the cross, reserved for the worst of criminals. He took upon himself the punishment that we deserve. Brothers and sisters, we often are Sanballat and Tobiah. Jesus is Nehemiah. You're not the hero of this story. Jesus is the hero. Jesus on the cross absorbed the righteous wrath of God. Death would not hold him. The God of heaven would make things prosper in his hand. The God of heaven would raise him from the dead. And he forever lives. And now, this same Christ who ever lives is not building walls. He's building the church. He's building a kingdom that's not limited to one geographical place. He's building a kingdom that's open to every person everywhere who decisively puts their trust in him. Have you placed your trust in Jesus? Nehemiah had a cup that he served, but Jesus had a cup that he drank. He was a greater cupbearer who drank the wine of God's wrath that we might drink the cup of God's blessing. So through the person of Jesus Christ, we can experience the good hand of God on our lives. A hand that we don't deserve. Jerusalem is getting blessed because Nehemiah has the good hand of God on his life. And we are getting blessed because our greater Nehemiah has the good hand of God on his life. And we are in him. Brothers and sisters, after we have received this Christ, God has given us a great work to do as well. We have a great work to do to build up the church of Jesus Christ. To build up the kingdom of God. And we do it knowing we have the good hand of our God upon us. Knowing that God is going to bless this work. Brothers and sisters, it boils down to this. Faith or fear. He's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Choose this day whom you will serve. And if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for our greater Nehemiah. Grateful for the ways that Nehemiah himself demonstrates your great love for your people. Great sacrifice. Great 
focus on mission and being willing to fulfill that mission and finish that work no matter what the cost. But we celebrate our greater Nehemiah who left a greater palace, endured greater opposition, endured more fierce trials, and built and finished a greater work. Lord Jesus, thank you that you said, like Nehemiah said, when the walls were done, it is finished. And your finished work by faith has been applied to us to free us from fear, to know that you've got us in your good hands, to know that we can leave the results with you, to know that we can wait upon you, to know that we can pray to you and act in dependence upon you, and you will do what is best for us. You command us over and over again, no matter, uh, more than any command in the Bible, do not be afraid because our fear messes, up, uh, messes us up in significant ways. Free us from our fear by recognizing your great love for us so that we might walk by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand with us.